Hello and welcome to the Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV and broadcast on the 12th of July. I'm James Heal, the Spectator's politics correspondent and your host for this week's episode. Coming up on the show, can the Conservatives really stop the boats via the illegal migration bill? As MPs and Lords fight over the flagship piece of legislation, I'll be speaking to the two sides of the argument, Tom Hunt MP and Tim Farron for the Lib Dems. Will AI be the death of us all? That's what Eliza Yukowski believes. Former number 10 advisor James Phillips interviewed him for the magazine this week. We'll show a clip of the discussion on the show. The Spectator's political editor Katie Balls takes a look at Labour's relationship with the trade unions in this week's column. Can Keir Starmer win over the likes of Mick Lynch and others? Katie and Stephen Bush join me on the show. For the cover piece this week, author and contributor Louise Perry looks at Britain's dangerous addiction to plastic surgery and how much social media is driving the trend. I'll be speaking to her later. Finally, Britons do love to gossip, and no more so when it's about a public figure like Philip Schofield or George Osborne. Historian Alice Loxton has written about the history of gossip in Britain and why we love it so much. She joins me on the show. Before we get going, why not subscribe to The Spectator? If you subscribe today, you'll not only get your first month free, but after your trial, you'll pay just £1 a week for full access to our website and app, or £2 a week if you want the print magazine too. To claim this great offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash best. And if you enjoy Spectator TV, then do subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon so you never miss another episode. First up, in Westminster this week, the Lords have been worrying with MPs of the Illegal Migration Bill. Some see it as essential to stop the boats crossing the channel, but the Bill's critics believe it criminalises some of the most vulnerable people in the world. Well, joining me now are two people from either side of that debate. Tom Hunt, Conservative MP for Ipswich, and Tim Farron, the Lib Dem MP and author of A Mucky Business, Why Christians Should Get Involved in Politics. Tim, you tweeted yesterday that this legislation was the worst piece you've seen in 18 and a bit years as an MP. Tell us why. Uh, because it's based on loads of bogus information. I think it's entirely legitimate to have a different point of view. Um, the majority of things I've had to vote on in those 18 and a half years, including many when I was actually in, on the government side, are things I didn't agree with. But I think the the legislation that is being pinged and ponged between the two Houses of Parliament at the moment is based on all sorts of assumptions that are false. Um, the uh, essential understanding that you know we are in a worse position than anywhere else, that people are heading straight for the United Kingdom. And, uh, and yet the reality is 70% of people who flee um, their home country as refugees stay in the next door country an ever-decreasing fraction of people uh, move further and further away. A small minority come to Europe, a very small minority come to the United Kingdom. And many of those, by the way, uh, who come uh, over the uh, channel to the UK um, will do so and will not be refugees. It's a minority. The government's own figures show it's a minority of about one in five. Um, but we'll never know that if we don't process them. So having a policy, a, a piece of legislation that essentially says we're going to assume everybody is bogus, bracket when our own figures know that 80% aren't, and therefore break all sorts of international understandings in the process, is essentially tackling one small symptom of a colossal global problem and doing it badly on the basis of wrong information. So it's not just a decision I disagree with. Most of them are those. <laughs> it's a decision I can't have any respect for because it's based on a total bogus misunderstanding or rather... I don't think the government are misunderstanding it at all. They know these facts and figures and they choose to do what they're doing because they think it has some political benefit for them. So it's very hard to respect um, those behind it. Tom, what's all your response to that? I mean, there are some claims. I mean, Tim made them yesterday in his speech in the Commons was that perhaps, you know, there's been sort of over but to an extent by ministers. What's your reaction to all of that? You know, I was, I, I'm glad to support the bill, happy to support the bill. Um, you know, very happy to vote against, you know, 18 laws amendments yesterday. Um, I think it's needed. I think this is of great concern to my constituents. Uh, they want us to have control of our borders. I think there's a majority of people in, our, in this country who want us to have control of these borders. And I think uh, to do that, we need to have a deterrent. Um, uh, and I think the important point is, you know, these are overwhelmingly seem to be single men who can afford to pay people smugglers who, are, who have come through multiple safe European countries. Uh, before they've illegally entered our country. We've got to have a robust approach. I think this bill does that. I'm happy to support it. And Tim made a point in the speech yesterday, which was that, you know, if every country starts doing this, you know, in terms of uh, closing down these legal routes, I mean, that could cause the whole collapse of the system. Is that not a real issue, particularly when Britain 
coin some of the figures, is not taking as many as, say, Germany, for instance. Yeah, I mean, I'd also say, actually, talking about Germany, that actually its acceptance rate for, for refugees is actually quite a bit lower than it is in the UK um, when it comes to claims. So it's quite an interesting point. I tell you where I've just been. I've just been with um, IOM talking about the Rohingya refugee situation. I've been to the Rohingya camp three times myself, and 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 the people I was speaking to told me that um, some other other countries, US, uh, Canada, uh, and I think now even Australia and New Zealand will be taking uh, some refugees from from the Rohingya refugee camp. So you know, I can see what's happening globally. I'm very aware that we have a duty to be generous towards genuine refugees. Uh, fleeing persecution and, and I'm not for a moment saying that I don't want us to be generous but we have to have a but we have to have a managed way of doing it we've got to have a control we've got to have a system of doing it and I think if, if we if we have control of it and we have a system that has integrity at its heart I think the British public will get behind it because they are compassionate but what they don't want to see is tens of thousands of people jumping the queue and arriving here illegally which is what has been happening I mean, Tim, you proposed uh, having more safe and legal routes to do this. I mean, is that really the case? I mean, surely critics of that will just say we're rewarding criminal behaviour effectively. Well, no, you bypass criminal behaviour. If, if, for example, when I did a visit with uh, Conservative and Labour MPs to Calais uh, last year, we met one of the Conservative MPs for Calais, um, for whom obviously it's a huge problem for him locally, but he was thinking about the situation beyond his community as well. In France, there's a there's quite an appetite amongst you know, sensible politicians of all different political flavours for allowing people to apply for asylum in the United Kingdom from a place in France, so you don't need to cross the channel to do so. And here's the thing, really: the the fact is that a real deterrent would be if we had a system that worked. In the end, what this really is all about is the pictures of people crossing by boats, but also the awareness that there's 177,000 people at the last count in temporary accommodations, some of which are hotels around the country. That's because the government's not managing the situation. Now, I don't know the situation or the details of uh, what happens to the many more refugees that there are in Germany than there are in the UK. And if there's a lower grant rate, maybe it's because they actually process their refugees, whereas we don't process ours. Those that we do process, by the way, turn out 80% to be actual refugees. And one of the problems is that we, you know, jumping the queue, I hear the point, and but the, the simple reality is any refugee who runs away is in a sense jumping the queue. They are seeking to kind of get a better life and to run away from war and persecution and all the rest of it. 99%, 99% government figures of Eritrean refugees, people who come to the United Kingdom by whatever means, normally by votes, turn out to be genuine refugees. If you know anything about Eritrea, that would not surprise you. However, there is not a single safe route. There is no resettlement program. There is nothing equivalent to Ukraine, Afghanistan, Syria, uh, or Hong Kong, which, by the way, are the only places you can legally come from now as a result of this bill. So what are we saying to those people um, who are victims of Africa's Kim Jong-un, basically, similar kind of situation there? We're saying we will not help you. And so we've got to have a system which allows us to provide sanctuary for those who desperately need it and not play up nonsense that makes out that somehow Britain is a wash. If you put Britain back into the EU for league table purposes, per capita, we're 22nd out of 28 in terms of the number of people we take um, as asylum seekers. I, I think in, in many respects, I think to those who um, you know don't feel as though as a country we take in enough refugees, I think it would be very legitimate for them to say, look, we should take more uh, um, and, and, and we should um, we should have more safe and legal routes, and this is sort of what the cap would be, roughly, because I'm assuming there'd be a cap. I can't imagine anyone would really believe it'd be uncapped. Um, but, but, but at the same time, realise that we, we we can't have a situation where we have tens of thousands of people turning up illegally. But these are dangerous crossings that we must deter. But ultimately, when we talk about safe and legal routes, um, I Labour, for example, talk about safe and legal routes. They talk about there needs to be a cap. They won't say what the cap should be, what level it should be. But my view is, if you could apply into, if you could apply for asylum um, in the UK from another country, I think quite quickly that cap would be reached. Quite quickly, it would be reached, um, and then we, we could be back at square one with people who, who you know, who, who who think they're refugees, but the cap's been reached for that year. Save as an annual cap, who will then continue to make um, dangerous crossings across the channel. There's there's a, there's a reality to the situation, which is we have potentially um, tens of millions of people across across the world who could potentially 
claim to be a refugee or get refugee status. We can't take all of them. We're a small island. Therefore, we, we do need to have a cap. And, and if we have a cap, if there is a cap, then we have to think about how we prioritise. And I just happen to think uh, that, we've, 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 so for example, some of the Rohingya refugees I've met three times, mainly women and children, perhaps slightly higher up that priority list than mainly single men who have come through multiple safe European countries. Um, and actually, the, the, the Rohingya refugees that I met don't have the opportunity to shop between different safe European countries about where I want to go. And actually, seeking a better life is different from fleeing persecution. Yeah, but isn't one of the issues of this legislation is that it's so black and white in terms of the exemptions that it puts down that those kind of individual, you know, scrutiny of those cases where you know, might have a heart, you know, reading sort of personal story about someone who's overcome, you know, such adversary, adversity and faced terrible things that we can't even think of. They're going to sort of all those kind of opt outs are going to be taken out by this bill, and that's the real problem here. But I think it's a really important thing, you know, if you are in a desperate situation, if you're fleeing persecution, then apply for asylum in your first safe country. You know, it's important to realise that all of these individuals have been in France, which is safe, where they could have claimed asylum. Before they got to France, presumably they went through many other safe European countries. Many of them are coming to the UK not necessarily because they want to be safe, because they're safe in France, but they're coming to the UK perhaps for other reasons, which is why I probably encourage them to look at our points based in the Greek immigration system and come here legally. It's not break our immigration. Tim, what's your response to that then? I mean, surely, as Tom said, I mean, the argument put forward by Conservative MPs is that why, why aren't they just staying in the first safe country? Well, nearly three quarters of them do. 70% do. Um, so, but are we to say that, you know, Lebanon, for example, has got to take absolutely everybody? 100% of people are going to stay next door? Come off it. So the reality is, first of all, most people do exactly that. Secondly, there is, under the United Nations Convention, you are not obliged to stop at the safe, first safe place for perfectly good reasons. A, because it would mean some countries would bear, would bear an even more unfair burden than is currently the case. And secondly, people often have good reason to be somewhere else. So you might, when I meet people who are refugees who are heading towards the United Kingdom, it's because they're ex-British colonies very often and see us as the, as the motherland, they see uh, or, or they have family relations uh, here and, and other connections. But the thing is this. So first of all, um, most people do stay in the next door country. Uh, secondly, they don't have to under UN law, and we should be grateful for that. And then thirdly, there is this trickling down, if you like, as you as people predominantly, if you're going from the Horn of Africa, find their way onto mainland Europe, it's a minority that do, and people stop along the way. So is France a safe country? Yes, it is. And the massive majority of people who go to France stay in France. And, and France could easily say, right, Britain said, we're not taking people from France, they can all clear off back to France, they'll come in the first place. We'll not even process them. We won't even look at whether they are or not refugees. And France can say, right, same to Italy, same to Spain. They're safe countries too. And then what have you got? Breakdown of the international system. So you've got one of two things. Well, actually, you know, both of two things will happen. One is Britain becomes more of a pariah internationally and becomes less significant, less influential, seen as a bad team player. And secondly, at the same time, you'll have some people who will copy us. So you have a combination of Britain being further reduced in its standing and effectiveness and influence in the world. And secondly, you'll help to break down the existing pretty tenuous system that already exists. So I just think it's incredibly foolish and based upon all sorts of false premises. And by the way, there's no scheme to allow the Rohingyas to come here either. Um, in the end, a competent government would assess those people who arrive here and would send back the ones that are not refugees. And you only know that if you assess them. By the way, people crossing on boats is a thing we really don't want. But one thing people have got to understand, this is what is so frustrating and shows such a lack of basic research into what's going on out there. If you fled from Sudan, for example, and you have worked your way through Libya, which is an appalling place, it's a reminder that no situation is ever so bad you can't make it worse. You know, the Gaddafi's time in Libya almost seems like a dream compared to what it is like there now. It is a hellhole for people passing through it. So you have somehow got through Libya. You have crossed the Mediterranean on a flimsy boat. You've had whatever you've had through Europe as you've headed towards family or the mother country in the UK. I'm afraid a few miles on a boat over the channel, which seems terrifying to you and me, it's not a lot compared to the horror that they have been through already, which is why we should be looking at providing safe routes much further down the line, not even in France, further back. I'm just, I'm just really, I'm really interested by this. So I'm just imagining that me, me and 
Tim are put in the room for a day, we are the government, me and Tim, and we have to come up with a solution to this to this issue. Uh, I I think that um, you know I do have I am compassionate towards want, us wanting to help refugees. Um, um, uh, and, and and you know Tim has said he wants to stop some small boat crossings. Okay, we both want to stop small boat crossings. Tim says a way to do that is to have uh, more safe and legal routes. But I want to understand more how this would work. So. What I would mean in practice is you could claim for asylum for refugee status in the UK from 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 anywhere across the world, presumably. Uh, and I'd also want to know from Tim, roughly, what sort of cap would he be looking at? Would it be uncapped? Would it be capped on an annual level? What do you, what do you think a, a generous refugee cap would look like? Well, the government doesn't know, and uh, and there would be no cap from the government's perspective either, because in the end, uh, what is being proposed is to effectively take anybody who arrives here irregularly um, and because it's not illegal under international law, it's irregular, um, anybody who arrives here irregularly would eventually be taken to Rwanda. That's an uncapped number. So the government have an un- the government have an uncapped number of asylum seekers that the UK taxpayer will pay for through the Rwanda system. I, I, okay, so I, what I think... Well, and you won't get what, more what there, th- you know that. What I think Tim is therefore saying is that Anyone, if they believe that they're a refugee, should be able to and free to apply to be get refugee status in the UK from wherever they are in the world, uh, and there, there shouldn't be a cap. And potentially, if that means that we have um, over a million applications that are successful, but a million extra refugees we take that year as the UK, is there a point where you'd introduce a capital? So there is no well, so there's no cap on your proposal. So the United Kingdom could very easily take a million people under the uh, illegal immigration bill that the United Kingdom government and the United Kingdom taxpayer is responsible for um, to warehouse in the United Kingdom because you'll have to do that because there's no way you're going to get the numbers of people you think you are to Rwanda just um, logistically. Uh, but the place we start, so this glorious coalition of you and me in government dealing with this, Tom, the first thing we do is admit it's an awful lot harder and a lot more difficult and be an awful lot more grown up about it than the current government is being. There is not an easy answer. And it does involve much better policing of our shores, or more importantly, of the French shores, working with them to make sure these don't come across. Bear in mind, mind, up until about, well, up until really the pandemic, a little bit beforehand, there wasn't a huge small boats crossing uh, industry for two or three reasons. One is uh, there wasn't such good policing of the Channel Tunnel and people were coming that way. And then secondly, once that unsafe route was closed up, people found other unsafe routes to manage to come across. And so the the reality is that we're dealing with uh, a demand that is out there and how do you do it in a, man- in, in a manageable and mature way. And that's why being part of the international community and behaving like it is the way you police the numbers. But the idea that there's going to be a million people coming when we already take only a quarter of what Germany takes only 7% of uh, all of the EU's um, uh, refugees is a reminder that this is a problem, but it's not the kind of emergency the United Kingdom government is making out that it is. And so my accusation really is the government knows this. And rather than being mature about the problem and acknowledging that it's a difficult problem with tough solutions that involve more than one solution, it's going for something simplistic that won't work and threatens Britain's status around the world and is also inhumane. Next, do we know the full dangers of artificial intelligence? Computer scientist Eliezer Yudkowsky has a far more bleak view than some of his peers. He believes AI could be the end of mankind. But is he right? We recorded an exclusive interview for The Spectator magazine between former number 10 advisor James Phillips and Eliezer Yudkowsky to discuss. You can watch a clip of it now below. What What is it necessarily that makes superintelligence so scary to you? Because in the time letter you said that your expectation and, and that of many others, and I, I know many of these people, um, and it's, it's definitely true, think that as soon as you get a sort of highly super intelligent organism, um, intelligence, um, humanity will, will be wiped out. But for some people, that's a big jump. What's, what have you found is like the best way of explaining to people why you, why you have that belief and how that would actually happen? So different people get stuck at different points along the way. Um, the first thing I would say is that it's not that anything smarter than us must, in principle, theoretical, absolute law like conservation of energy 
um, destroy us all. There would be possible superintelligences that didn't destroy us all. We don't know how to build them. We're extremely early uh, in scientific terms, and in, in like terms of the progress of a scientific field when it comes to understanding and shaping uh, even the versions of AI that we have now to say nothing of something smarter than us. And if we had like an unlimited time to work on this, if we had 50 years, 100 years to work on this, if we got an unlimited number of tries, if we could build one and it, and the, whoops, uh, that didn't work, build another one, whoops, that didn't work. Um, I think it would probably, in some sense, might even just be an or something of an ordinary scientific challenge if you got an unlimited number of tries. Um, the part that I'm worried about is that if you make have a little oopsie with something that is much smarter than you, everyone dies rather than you getting to go back and try again. Uh, I could talk specifically about the sheer opacity of these systems, the degree to which um, they're more grown than built. We have no idea what goes on in there. Um, I could talk about the foreseeable difficulties, given the way that we grow them, of getting them to internally want particular things rather than just sort of exhibiting temporary outward behaviors. Um, I could talk about the reason to expect that if you go up something much smarter than you, you lose, even if it starts out with its brain on a computer somewhere the same way that your mind is stuck inside a little cavern in your skull. Um, it starts out, it, you know, if it starts out connected to the internet, how it bootstraps from there, what sort of more powerful technologies are ones which we ourselves understand well enough to guess that something much smarter than us could build them quickly. Um, that things with random desires that don't specifically care about you, that don't specifically care about sapient life, if they get very, very powerful, they don't want to kill you, but they do other things that kill you as a side effect, or they calculate that they can get more of the galaxy for themselves if they prevent you from building any competitors. Um, there's, a, there's a number of points here, and, and different people tend to think that different ones are the obvious important point that they want to see addressed immediately. And the other ones are just distractions. They don't know why you're talking about. So like, I mean, one of the, one of the issues you have in thinking about this is, you know, if I was to play Gary Kasparov at chess, um, I could be very confident he would beat me, but I wouldn't have any idea ahead of time how he would do it. It's sort of similar. We can't really imagine what a super intelligence um, would, would be like. Um, I think like in, in terms of the question that comes up a lot is, you know, why why would it want to do this? And you know, from from reading what you've written, um, you know, I, I know that in some sense that's kind of that question might be looking at it from the wrong perspective, and that it doesn't want to kill you; it just incidentally does it. So, would you mind like giving an example of how something like that would happen? Um, well, if it's much much smarter than you, if it can bootstrap to the point of self-replicating factories, um, and it wants to do anything that requires it to do a lot of computation, then it, if it's, you know, you can build lots and lots of fusion plants, self-replicating machinery that builds fusion power plants to run your computers. And if you build enough of those, you are start to be limited by heat dissipation before you run out of hydrogen in the oceans to fuse. So even if it doesn't specifically go out of its way to kill you, you might die when the oceans boil off and the Earth's surface gets too hot to live on because of the amount of power that's being generated. Now, it could go out of its way to save you if it wanted to do that, but it's not likely to... Well, we don't have the technology. We don't know how to make it want to save us. So that's like the, the, the critical point of... Um we don't know how to align the machine with what, what human values are, however you define human values, and our progress in making these things more capable at achieving a task that we've set it is going much faster than our ability to get it to do it in a way that we would like. So the classic example is the paperclip maximizer, where you ask it to produce as many paperclips as possible, and pretty soon it's killed everyone and turned the whole world into paperclips, kind of line of thinking. That's actually a distorted story. The, the original version is that you just completely lose control of the utility function. You build a thing, you, you try to shape its preferences, you fail, the preferences end up not literally like random roll of a dice, but from your perspective, they're pretty random. And then it, the 
part of its utility function, the things that satisfy it, that scales the fastest, or like, or that is like most efficient to satisfy um, at scale, turns out to be maximized by configurations of matter that are shaped by tiny molecular paperclips, is the original example. And Nick Bostrom then simplified it to a paperclip factory. But I think this is actually like a poor simplification for a couple of reasons, one of which is that the whole point from my perspective is that you can't make it want paperclips. Paperclips are something that it ends up wanting by accident. Problem number two, what kills you isn't going to be an AI that was deployed to a factory. It's going to be, you know, like frontier thing in the research lab that probably hasn't been deployed to anyone at all. So you have, you, you, you have, how, how, where would you put your confidence level on the on the sort of hypothesis that you put forward in the time article that everyone dies are you sort of at the 90 percent likelihood or is it even a meaningful question because you you seem quite confident about about your projection that this is this this needs to all be shut down because otherwise we will die i mean what, how would you define your and how has that changed over time i i mean i would say that if we go ahead and build a super intelligence, anything remotely like the current technology, anything cur remotely like the current social situation, where you know you, you've got like the heads of, of major AI labs denying that any problem could possibly exist, they, they don't deny that you can build super intelligence. They deny that it could possibly reasonably go wrong. Like that is actually the line they are putting forth right now. And if if we are just like plunge ahead, anything like the current state, the probability that we die is yes. The probability is I haven't seen anything as weird as us surviving happening often enough for, for me to like put it to, to be able to calibrate my own probabilities. I have to be like very, very wrong about something in a direction that makes the problem easier rather than harder. And I don't know how you're supposed to put a probability on that. But, you know, I would say it's more like 99% than 90%. That if we just like keep going on a straight line, we. I mean, in the early days, um, when you read statements from Shane Legg and and and, and Sam Altman and others, they they were much more clear openly that they were trying to build machines that could do anything a human can do. That that was their sort of the, the AGI line, and yet it seems like that's gone quieter over the last couple of years. And when I speak to sort of senior government science advisors, they don't seem to quite get what the end goal of places like OpenAI and DeepMind um, is, which is. I don't know if that's deliberate by them or if that's just the way that the media is reporting it, but it seems that the, their end goal hasn't hasn't filtered through um, to the public. And my own experiences of this is in talking to the to the to you know people who aren't who aren't AI researchers is people find that idea um, quite horrifying. And I think it, it reflects something that I think you've said that when Ch Chat GPT um, came out, more and more people were saying to you that you know why are we doing this? And that's been very much the the um, the message that I've picked up as well. Yeah, I, I have a similar impression. My impression is, uh, well, first of all, to be clear, like as far as I know, Shane Legg has not changed his tune publicly and said that, said that there's no danger. So, like, like Shane Legg is one of the people who is relatively more informed, and you know, he's constrained by being a co-founder of DeepMind, but he, but he hasn't gone around telling people. Oh no, he had no, no, I wasn't suggesting that. Um, and, and and the other thing is like, you know, back in those days, you could be like, yeah, sure, we're like going to build something smarter than human, and people and ChatGPT didn't exist yet, so people didn't take that seriously, and it was just like, oh, cool, yeah, like you go you, and then AI came along that could actually talk to people, and people were like, wait, you're doing what? But you know, the old the the old tweets already exist, and to some extent, the media has no memory, so they're getting away with it. Um. And also, like, I'm not sure that I would say that some of the people saying these things really believed their own line themselves. Like, it was always apparent to me that you'd get to super intelligence eventually if you just kept pushing. And for me, that was just like a part of the real world, like any other part of the real world. Um, and, you know, I was like, and as soon as I realized that aligning AI was going to be a problem at all, that they weren't just going to automatically end up nice after, like, poking at the problem for a while... You know, getting into the technical details, realized, nope, they're not all going to be nice, which is kind of the why I started out believing. Um, I was like, whoa, like major planetary emergency coming up in an unknown number of years. 
And some people 20 years will go like, no, no, it's going to be like 50 years out. And that's somehow fine. And other people were like, yeah, we're going to like go out and build super intelligence. But did they really believe it deep down? To me, it seems that if you really believe that deep down, you might be, you know, kind of, kind of worried about whether or not you could pull that off without killing literally everyone. Um, so I don't know to what extent the people who early on were like confidently like thrusting out their chest and being like, yeah, we're going to build super intelligence later. I'm not sure to what extent they were able to have models where what they were saying was real. So like there's, there's, there's a form of super intelligence where it exists and it's almost by definition able to, you know, do the, the terrible things which would end the world. Um, I guess like, but there's also a lot of potential benefit from AI and, you know, you've, you've mentioned in your, in your time article, for example, that there could be exemptions for say medical research AIs. Um, now I think like, what do you have, do you have a view like, oh, go ahead. Well, I, 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 to just say, say clearly that I'm not, that's not because medical research is important on par with human extinction, but because the medical research line of things is what you need to augment human intelligence and get us out of the terrible situation we're in. Like I wasn't saying, I wasn't trading off extinction risk against medical benefits. I was foreseeing that we needed the biotech. So what's, later. what, how would you describe whether the line is, or is there a line that you could draw that, that people should be thinking about this, this kind of AI development is okay. This is good. Um, whereas this side is bad or are you of the view that as these things get more and more capable, they will inherently develop goal seeking behavior that inherently begin trying to maximize some function that we don't, we don't think will, will end up with aligned behavior. I think if you push anything far enough, especially on anything remotely like the current paradigms, like if you make it capable enough, the way it gets that capable is by starting to be general. And at the same sort of point where it starts to be general, it will start to have its own internal preferences because that is how you get to be general. You don't become creative and able to solve lots and lots of problems without something inside you that organizes your problem solving. And that thing is like a preference and a goal, and it's not built in explicitly. It's just something that's sought out by the process that we use to grow these things to be more and more capable. Um, with that said, I don't know exactly how far you can push. It's possible that you've... So, like, right now, uh, AlphaFold 2 is, like, the world's leading AI when it comes to predicting how proteins fold up. And as far as I know, they, like, didn't have to get anywhere near generality in order to pull that off successfully. So you can probably push AlphaFold even further. You might even be able to have it start designing proteins that have particular chemical properties. You might be able to get it to try to decode biological systems. And you would want to be on the lookout for signs that it was starting to generalize. And then you would pull back. But as long as you are building a narrow AI, as long as you can solve your problems with the narrow AI, not, not a general AI that you try to only get to think about one kind of problem, but something that was just like narrow from the start and never saw any signs of generalizing. Um, my guess is that you're safe. You know, just a wild guess. Not based on any clear, informed scientific theory, just my personal guess. Next, the Labour Party for more than a century has had close ties to the trade union movement. But as these have become to deteriorate between Keir Starmer and the union leaders, what will be their role in the future of Labour and potentially the next government? Joining me to discuss are Katie Balls and Stephen Bush of the Financial Times. Katie, what is Keir Starmer's relationship with trade unions like? So he's not a natural trade unionist. He, of course, is a career lawyer who then moved into politics. And therefore, I don't think he is anti the trade unions, but we're in a very different world than we think back to the Jeremy Corbyn era. Um, at that point, um, you often saw, of course, Len McCluskey, who was at the time uh, the General Secretary of Unite. He was one of the four M's, along with Seamus Milne, um, Andrew Murray, and Carrie Murphy. And they formed the Quad and were often blamed for being Jeremy Corbyn's brain, where there was uh, you know, lacklustre support for staying in the EU, um, in the view of uh, Labour MPs, or just General Corbyn policies. Um, and and therefore it felt as though Unite was very key in making lots of decisions. I think under Keir Starmer, and so there's actually been an active effort as part of the rebranding of the Labour Party to show that they are willing to stand up to the unions. 
Um, I, I think I had an interesting conversation with Bridget Phillips in the Shadow Education Secretary a few months ago um, when she was talking about being heckled at the NEU conference, the National Education Union. Um, and this was about um, Ofsted and the fact that um, unlike Jeremy Corbyn, who would abolish it, Keir Starmer would keep it. They'd used the very popular word, of reform, um, in terms of what they'd do to it. Um, but it was almost, you almost get a sense when you talk to some of these shadow cabinet members, it's almost a badge of honour if the unions are a bit unhappy with what they're doing because they're showing they're willing to take you know, um, them on. So we're in a different world, but it's different than saying that Keir Starmer's anti-union. Um, I think, you know, if we you have a situation where leaders of rather than union stayed affiliated, those are currently, but there's definitely a determination to show they're not as dependent. And also it's partly because they, they aren't as dependent as they used to be. I've left because of the private donations coming in and filling that gap where the unions were the main funder. Um, and Stephen, you know, Katie's talking there about sort of publicly and you know, people like West Streeting are very happy to go out there and criticise the BMA. Uh, but privately, do they retain much influence in the making of labour policy? Well, the crucial thing to remember about both the trade unions you've just named, the BMA and the NEU, is that they are not affiliated trade unions, right? And basically, if you are the leader of the Labour Party, you can't, you know, whether you're Jeremy Corbyn or Tony Blair or Hugh Gaitskell or Harold Wilson or Keir Starmer, you cannot effectively run the party if you do not have basically at least two of the big affiliated trade unions willing to either deliver for you um, pretty consistently or deliver for you on a transactional basis. And broadly speaking, um, one of the re- one of Jeremy Corbyn's big difficulties is that um, his only way of getting stuff done was the axis of his support in the grassroots and unite the trade union, which meant, broadly speaking, he didn't, he wasn't, you know, you're, you're most powerful at a Labour leader where you can do a deal with one trade union one week, another trade union the next week, etc., etc. Keir Starmer isn't quite in that position, but he has slightly more flexibility, whereas on everything from, yeah, the EU obviously being the most politically fraught thing in the last parliament, but something I imagine most viewers have forgotten, which is the uh, vote on Heathrow expansion, mm. broadly speaking, that position on Heathrow was not one that I would say anyone who was close to the ear of Jeremy Corbyn really wanted, but Unite represents a lot of members at Heathrow, and so they got what they wanted. And so the Labour leadership is still, yeah, there's a reason why West Streeting feels much more able to talk about reforming GPs, standing up to the BMA, than he does about nurses, because nurses are partially represented by Unison, and Unison are an affiliated trade union. And so it's not just, uh, you know, Keith Summer, of course, uh, Katie, in your column this week, you write about Rachel Reed's relationships with the union. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I think as Stephen mentions, ultimately, we separate the unions when we're talking about them from the non-affiliated and the affiliated. So the three most important unions are Unite, uh, who this week had a vote um, about potentially disaffiliating. It's not the first time they've done this. So there's some groans um, from the Labour Party um, that uh, did not succeed. Overwhelmingly, they voted in favour, but you had uh, the leader putting, uh, the general secretary putting Keir Starmer on notice that they had to listen more to them. And then you have Unison, uh, which is, as Stephen says, uh, looking after a lot of care workers, nurses. And then you have GMB, which is uh, you know lots of the industrial um, sectors. Now, Rachel Reeves um, has, uh, I think, managed to annoy quite a lot of the unions, including some of the affiliated, with her comments recently about independent pay review bodies and how uh, she would not necessarily, she would not pre-commit to accepting the recommendations of independent pay review bodies when it comes to public sector pay rises. And that, I think, unsurprisingly got short shrift from the unions. That's something they want. Um, but other than that, I think when you look at those three big unions, Unite is probably the most hostile of the three towards the Labour leadership. And of course, by being affiliated, it's not just money that the Labour Party get, you also get votes. Um, NEC meetings before the election on the manifesto. And then you have probably Unison is the most supportive of the Keir Starmer leadership. Um, the first big union to back Keir Starmer in the Labour leadership contest. And then somewhere in the middle is GMB. And I think partly because um, of the leanings of the other two, it's definitely seen as probably the most influential. Mm. And that's a union that Rich Reeves enjoys a good relationship with the leader, Gary Smith. And GMB is a really interesting union, isn't it, Stephen, in light of what's been going on with the Green New Deal within Labour? Yeah, because, I mean, yeah, the B does stand for Boilermakers, right? So we are talking about a union which is both on the front line of lots of the stuff and they want to do about insulation, you know, heat pumps, etc., all of that kind of stuff, but is also at the front line of the type of jobs that we would expect the green transition to get rid of. 
and precisely for the reasons sort of Kate, Katie says, right, because they are the, the, the swing, the available swing boat, right, Usdor and Unison are going to back uh, Keir Starmer pretty much no matter what. Unite are going to oppose them on many, many things. Uh, so the GMB has set themselves up very well. And that, yeah, there was a lot, a lot of noise recently about um, Labour's policy on oil and gas. Some people talking about how it was because the Scottish Labour Party was worried about the SNP. Well, no one in the Labour Party thinks they're going to win back the Aberdeen seats, right? Those, the, that is the heart of Scottish nationalism now. What that is really about is the GMB going, uh, excuse me, if you want to continue um, dominating the parliamentary selections, as the Starmerites are, if you want to continue getting your business passed on the floor of the Labour Party conference without unedifying floor fights on national TV, which obviously they did very successfully in recent conferences, yeah, what have you done for us lately? And that, I think, is going to be a big tension, right? Because the Labour Party's big argument is, well, we wouldn't have to do any of this difficult stuff on, on tax rises because we have a growth strategy. Well, what is their growth strategy? Their growth strategy is their climate strategy. Well, who is the biggest winner from some of their climate strategy? Members of the GMB. Who is the biggest loser from some of their climate strategy? Members of the GMB. And uh, Katie, you know, Stephen has previously written about some of the sort of policy wins which unions can expect perhaps in government. Tell us about some of those. What are they likely to see? So I think the, the biggest current offerings to unions is something uh, that we've heard from Angela Rayner. Um, obviously, lots of different job titles at the moment. Um, but the Labour reshuffle, that could be slimmed down shortly. But she, um, when we talk about whether Keir Starmer is, you know, trade unionist, well, his deputy definitely is. You know, she used to work at Unison. And I think, therefore, the Charter of Workers' Rights that she set out previously, something which uh, you can expect the Labour government to bring in the first 100 days in terms of bringing in changes to workers' rights, is something which I think is, is seen as that all the unions will welcome. Then I think you, so, so that's like part and parcel. And then I think you get to what are the other areas? And that's where you get back to the green debate. And GMB, I think, are playing a really influential voice on this. I think you have, I have a quote in the piece uh, by, uh, you know, an anonymous quote, but someone in number 10 I was speaking to. So this is a conservative saying, Gary Smith, this is the Scottish Union leader of GMB saying, Gary's a good guy. Um, I'm not sure if that's what Gary wants to hear. But I think it does just show you that um, in terms of some of the things that GMB are arguing for, and obviously, as Stephen says, you're balancing different interests, um, it is an important thing in this debate on green going forward. Because if you step back, we've just come from a weekend of quite strange briefings on the Sundays um, about, you know, whether Keir Starmer said that he hates tree huggers and meeting on the shadow cabinet. Um, those people say, you know, actually, he didn't say that. But if you take a step back from all, all the noise, um, what it points to is this ongoing conversation, which is about how much you prioritize green over economy and how you link them. Um, and so therefore, if you think back to the days of last year's Labour conference, and there was a debate about whether to have a green rose, yeah. um, they kept it red. I think we're a long way from that point now. Are you, are you want to say yeah, I mean, I think Kate is exactly right. Then, look. Candidly, um, I think it is unlikely, to put it mildly, than Keir Starmer said, I hate tree huggers. But what's interesting about that row is that, in some ways, that that rather fiery quote, you could tell them it was a relief for Labour frontbenchers because they could say, well, I was in that meeting and he didn't say that. What none of them dispute is the tone of the argument in the Labour Party about, you know, to what extent is, is their green plan, A, is it a way of, like, making sure they don't lose votes to the left, be modernising the economy, uh, or is it, uh, you know, green jobs, jobs of the future, you know, like jobs for the boys kind of thing? And ultimately, that tension within the Labour Party is not going to be resolved in an election. It's going to be one of the running subplots uh, if, as I think seems overwhelmingly likely, we get a Labour government after the next election. And the final point I want to ask, Katie, uh, you mentioned earlier the Tories. Uh, they've obviously not been shy uh, historically about trying to exploit uh, Labour's links with the trade unions. I mean, given that the trade unions seem to have not so much the kind of union barons of, say, Lemma McCluskey's day, etc., uh, how will the Tories try to exploit that coming up to the next year's election? Well, you can see it this week when you had the Unite vote. And, of course, you know, it shows the state affiliated overwhelmingly. But those quotes, um, because you had the General Secretary saying, now more than ever is the time we should stay affiliated because building up to the elections where we have the most influence. And therefore, Greg Hans, party chairman, coming out and saying, you know, as you would expect, this is the same old, um, yeah. and trying to make that attack line. Do I think it's so effective at the moment? Um, I think that Keir Starmer is trying to uh, ultimately strike quite a delicate balance in terms of 
there is a preference in the leader's office that these big unions stay affiliated. I think that as much as sometimes Keir Starmer wants to pick a fight with the left of the party, there are some concerns of what it would say if you actually, you know, lost the support of the trade unions full stop. Um, but um, this balance of almost, you know, showing some strength by also suggesting they're not dominating everything is going to be important for not allowing the Tories to attack it. Um, we don't know yet what uh, a victory for the Labour Party looks like. And of course, as soon as you have a situation where, you know, a large majority, a small majority, depending on the debates, things can change. But right now, I think that the Tories are not, it's not as easy for, attack, for the Tories to attack as it has been in the past. Next, plastic surgery is fast becoming a highly lucrative business. Fueled by social media driving unrealistic beauty standards, Louise Perry writes for Ask cover piece this week that this unregulated industry is becoming increasingly dangerous. Louise joins me now. Louise, you write in this week's uh, magazine about why life in plastic might not be so fantastic. Uh, tell us about why you decided to write about the recent trend in plastic surgery. Well, I think the interesting thing about plastic surgery is that it has become super normal super quickly in that it's obviously been around in different manifestations for a long time, but it's historically been um, A, very expensive and B, uh, for that reason, very much associated with a kind of eccentric minority, maybe extremely rich minority. Whereas now, you know, you can get lip fillers for £200 or something like that. You can get Botox for a similar kind of sum to the extent that those interventions, which are obviously at the milder end of plastic surgery, but they're not trivial, um, are so normal that it's actually affecting what we think normal faces look like. Particularly if you look on screen, any celebrity you care to mention is going to have had something done. So it does affect, I think, how we regard how we regard beauty um, in a way that's clearly trickling down to teenagers in particular, which ended up being the focus of the piece. Yes, and in this week's magazine, I think you achieve a journalistic first by getting the phrase Brazilian butt lift into the magazine. Thank you very much. Explain to our readers what a BBL is <laughs> and why so many people are getting them. Uh, it is a procedure where you basically remove fat from, um, you kill two birds with one stone. So you remove fat from some part of the body where you don't want it and you put it into your bum. Um, it's quite a dangerous procedure because you really mustn't um, inject the fat into an artery, right? That's really dangerous. And actually the BBL is considered to have one of the most, is, is one of the most dangerous cosmetic interventions that you can have worldwide. Um, it's also massively increasing in popularity. And the big destination for UK women to go and get a BBL is uh, Turkey. And sometimes there have been cases of women who go and get a BBL overseas in you know, areas where maybe the industry is less well regulated and end up coming back to the UK having had some horrible outcome, which the NHS then has to has to fix. So it's quite a um it's a significantly more serious thing to consider doing than getting a bit of Botox, but it's all on a continuum. And what's driving this trend? I honestly think that what drives it is just that when these new when this new tech comes on the market, you know, it's initially what typically happens is it comes on the market, it's very expensive. It's only adopted by the super wealthy celebrities, whatever. Um, they show off the, the results on Instagram and it kind of filters down the food chain and then it becomes cheaper and more normal. I think it's actually one of those in industries where it's the tech that drives it and they can kind of just rely on infinite demand because um, who doesn't want to be beautiful? You know, <laughs> like this is the thing, like there's so much data showing that actually better looking people have better life experiences in every way. You know, they earn more, they attract more attractive partners, like people like them more. There's an incredible level of inequality actually based on beauty, which we don't really talk about. Although lookism is an expression that some people use um, in academic discussion of this. So, you know, based on that, is it crazy to want to spend however much money you can on looking better? I think probably not. So there's a certain sanity behind it, a reasoning behind it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And in terms of what views of beauty are, and sort of the cultural interpretations of that, you write a really interesting um, bit in the piece where you talk about, uh, you know, Kim Kardashian and how that's changing the interest of beauty as well. And it seems in some ways that you sort of get these kind of plastic surgery from different bits around the world. So you have the Brazilian butt lift, but you also have South Korean noses as well. Yeah, we've had a very interesting kind of uh, globalization push within beauty, within beauty norms. Um, and um, my argument in the piece is that Kim Kardashian and the other Kardashians, the, you know, the, the clan are obviously a very um, influential group of women. Um, they deny having had lots of intervention, let's be clear, um, for, you know, for the purposes of the tape. But 
Um, I think it's clear that they have had some work done. And like Kylie Jenner, for instance, you can buy the Kylie Jenner package um, at many aesthetic clinics around the country where you get injections in all different parts of your face. And um, Kim denies having had any kind of injections in her bum. But anyway, we can we can um, allow the listeners to decide for themselves. Point is that the aesthetic that they have adopted is an interestingly kind of ethically ambiguous one because they have you know, the big bums that we maybe associate with West African women, but then they have the small noses, more commonly found on European women. And then they have like amazing long hair with extensions that normally you'd only see on South Asian women. So they've kind of taken some of the most beautiful features of women from different parts of the world and artificially, you know, put them in the same figure, who then obviously is considered to be a sort of super, super normal stimulus. Like the most beautiful woman you can imagine is basically, is basically Kim Kardashian. And that look can really only be achieved artificially. So I call it the Coca-Cola of beauty. And then it's like taking all the most delicious possible elements and putting it into this one consumable. And what's so telling, I think, a lot about the, the modern beauty industry is how it marks itself as accessible, as sort of classless. But as sort of the implication of your piece is that there's you know, big money involved in trying to make yourself achieve this Coca-Cola look. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the emerging market um, is the middle classes, is... is, right. is you know, women who are maybe, and some men as well, though it's mostly women who are doing this, who are earning, you know, 40, 50K. Like that's the kind of demographic that are now starting to, to adopt some of these procedures, which were previously the preserve of the rich. Um, and increasingly young women as well, you know, like baby Botox. I don't know if you've heard that expression, but that's Botox that you start getting in maybe when you're 30 as a way of preventing the wrinkles. And uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, extremely accessible, we could say. Ubiquitous is another way of putting it. Yes, and you also mentioned, I mean, you mentioned there the, the Kardashians, and obviously they're now in their mid 40s. So it's also a case of, you know, not just people in their 30s getting it, but 40s and 50s as well. I mean, as you said earlier, that if you think that most uh, women who are, you know, famous in their 50s or so, you say on television, will have had to have some kind of surgery or something to help with that. We had Isabel Oakeshott on the TV before saying that her looks are a key part of her job. And frankly, you know, BBC presenters in the past have said they wouldn't be put on TV unless they're going to be looking a certain way. So it's also about women getting older as well, isn't it? Yeah, and they're not wrong. You know, you can't, I don't feel like one can blame individual women for making completely rational decisions on the basis of, you know, if you want to uh, sustain a TV career or whatever, it is probably a good idea to get Botoxed. Um, and that's, I think, one of the things that's so pernicious about this, that what we think, say, a 50-year-old woman looks like is really skewed by the fact that the 50-year-old women we see in our magazines and on the TV actually look about 35 right and and even somewhat you know like Meryl Streep is looking absolutely incredible for a woman in her 70s you know like in a way that you would I think never I have no idea how much work she's done but you would never see that historically so we are moving into a sort of different era we have this almost cyborg beauty which is achieved through technology. Do you think there's enough of a debate around this because it seems to me perhaps that when it comes to plastic surgery people don't want to intrude about people's looks etc but also maybe perhaps there's a stigma to do with politicians, say, for instance, in terms of you know, the regulation around all this. Is there enough of that kind of debate going on? I mean, I think there's a very strong argument for regulating the more dangerous stuff. The BBL, for instance, is, I think, probably too dangerous, really. Um, although, of course, one of the problems is that we might regulate it heavily in the UK, but it's hard to stop people from going overseas and getting it done more cheaply. So it's tricky. Um, you can't ban Botox, though, realistically. You know, I, I, it's... The, I think that if we're going to try and intervene at any point, you know, and my advice to any readers who are anxious about their teenage girls, for instance, being um, becoming obsessed with this stuff, is probably through trying to restrict teenagers using social media, because we know that a really big way that this is filtering through the culture is through social media, where, you know, hashtag Barbie nose job on TikTok is this incredibly popular. There's this trend on TikTok, which I wasn't aware of before writing this piece, for girls to do these like before and after um, videos on TikTok and they just go wild, like millions and millions of likes, which is strange for me because I thought, this shows how old I am, I thought that you were supposed to kind of keep it secret if you'd had work done. Whereas it seems that actually now for Zoomers, boasting about the work you've had done is considered fine. And that obviously encourages other girls to do the same. And a lot of plastic surgeons are advertising their, their clinics on social media you know, click the link in bio and you can get this done yourself. Um, and there's also perhaps a case as well that 
you know, in the early noughties, there was a certain stereotype of the kind of women who'd be getting plastic surgery, et cetera. Do you think that with the kind of cultural change as well, it's, you know, it, people from different classes, et cetera, are going to be seeing much more of it and it's a trend that's only going to continue? I think probably, yeah. I mean, we still, you know, think of Madonna, for instance, who's had, clearly had a lot of work done and she's had a lot of fun made out of her for that. Um, I think that there's still a view that having too much is, is, is worthy of derision. You've got to feel sorry about some of these older female celebrities who they have too much work done, they get made fun of. If they don't have any work done, they lose their livelihoods, right? So they've got a real tight trip to tread, which is really difficult. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think that we are likely to see this going in any other direction than just continued escalation. It's funny when I talk to some older women, for instance, who can recall a period where having even less, spending even less on your appearance was considered normal. You know, things like it didn't apparently used to be common for older women to dye their hair. It used to be much more common to just gradually become grey and be natural. Whereas I think now dyeing your hair is completely normal. And it's actually quite rare to see women turning grey at the point that they naturally would turn grey. Um, maybe we're going to have the same things with having having forehead wrinkles. So the Barbie film, which is coming out in the coming weeks, uh, might not just be a fantasy anymore, but much more of close to a reality for some women. And finally, I just want to ask about men getting plastic surgery as well. You mentioned it, it's, it's less than 10%, I think, or so, getting that amount. But do you think this is going to be the kind of next thing as well, with much more focus on kind of male grooming, etc., men being targeted by social media, this could become the next big thing? Yeah, I mean, men are getting things done, like um, men do get Botox done. Men can get things like jawline fillers to make your jaw look stronger. You get like whatever the acid they insert onto your skin. So there is sort of male-specific work that you can get done. Um, I think that we should always expect women to be more interested in this and for them to make up most of the market. I think for the simple reason that beauty, female beauty, has always had this enormous kind of social status. I think the counterpart to that for men is actually looking, men looking rich. Yeah. Right, men having expensive suits and fancy cars and, you know, that's sort of the gendered counterpart. And finally, I mean, there's an iron there, isn't there, between all the focus on body positivity when actually it's very kind of prescriptive in terms of what women and men should look like and what their look should be and having all this kind of artificial treatment. You can fold that in quite nicely, though, can't you, into a sort of alternative narrative where actually going and getting work done is like living your truth, you know, your, your expression of whatever you want your body to be. There's a certain sort of, I don't know, self-fashioning that you can achieve through aesthetic treatments, which in a way actually fits quite well with that style of po of, of um, sort of gender politics. Um, I think it's incoherent, but it seems as though lots of the, the, the girls on TikTok are quite happy to pursue it. Quite cynical self-justification. Well, uh, who can blame them, to be honest? Who can blame them? Thanks yeah. very much. And finally, this summer has shown Britain's true love of tabloid gossip. First, there was Philip Schofield. Then, just last week, George Osborne poison pen email, and now the BBC scandal is on the front page of most national newspapers. But what's behind Britain's relationship with gossip? How far back does it stretch in our history? With me to discuss is the Regency historian and author Alice Loxton. Now, Alice, it's been a big week for uh, gossip in the press with these stories about George Osborne's poison pen letter, the allegations around what's happening with the BBC at the moment. Um, but this is something that we Brits have a sort of natural tendency towards, don't we? Well, we do indeed. I mean, I've been looking a lot recently at the satires or the print shops of the 18th century and the way that gossip was elevated, I think, by these print shops um, really puts the, the, the tabloid journalism of today to shame. So I think, you know, the, the era of James Gilray and Thomas Rowlandson and Isaac Cruikshank and all of those people who were who were basically um, just visualising the the chit chat and the the kind of anecdotes that were flying through Westminster. They were a kind of real powerful force in in society at the end of the 18th century. And obviously, at the Spectator, we have Coffee House, which is our blog, and nod to that the, the coffee houses of those era and all the gossip that was exchanged there. Um, and this sort of tradition has echoed down the centuries, hasn't it? Where people sort of gather to meet, and there's something about particularly Westminster life uh, where those th sort of anecdotes are swapped and shared, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean. Coffee houses were a really exciting thing. Um, they really came to the fore in the 18th century, I think. And they were this place where people were supposed to come along and just, you know, disseminate ideas and discuss all, you know, be all kinds of people would be gathering there. Um, and there were all sorts of rules about it that would really encourage discussion and debate. And they'd have all of the, the prints that were being produced. They'd have lots of the, uh, 
the 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 weekly papers and, and magazine sorts of things coming out so it was a real place for for discussion and debate um and sure a place that you'd love to hang out james in your spare time but yeah and i think you know the it's it's the kind of the the um essence of that probably exists in spectator in the way that it's always this kind of hub of debate and that kind of thing and in your excellent spectator life piece uh, you, you rise about uh, a french visitor to one of these coffee <laughs> houses and exclaiming is there something kind of unique to perhaps london of that era or the Brits in terms of things like, you know, our print tradition, our kind of culture. Is there something uniquely British about gossip? Well, um, in the late 18th century, when there were this kind of pinnacle of satire and print shops, this was something which was pretty, pretty powerful. It was a pretty powerful force in politics. It shaped politics quite profoundly in lots of ways, shaped society in all sorts of different ways, shaped the way that we make jokes, shaped the way that people had conversations. And it was something which was quite specific and unique to London, perhaps because of the the artists who happened to be working here. Um, but also there was a kind of freedom of discussion. Um, people were, it was much more relaxed about what you could say. You know, you could criticize the king in a print and his palace would be just nearby. And, and foreign visitors would come to London and they'd be shocked that you could criticize somebody so, um, you know, so, so blatantly. And you weren't allowed to do this in other countries, in France and in other places. So it was it was a kind of real unique thing that we had here. Um, and and, you know, people across the continent would would um, would they loved they loved hearing about it. I mean, the Germans loved hearing there was this entire magazine called London and Paris. And it was all about kind of the London print shops. And they loved hearing all the gossip of the print shops. And they were just kind of fascinated by how people could get away with this, really. So partly because of the, the Britain's kind of uh, political history, as it were, post-English Civil War and the kind of the Enlightenment and the, the change of the 18th century, etc. That was part of the reason, also technological change as well, which made the dissemination of these kind of gossip and pamphlets possible. Yeah, I mean, I think in the late 18th century, almost perhaps, you know, George III, George IV, they're all being criticised in this like really blatant way. But perhaps they thought, you know, putting these prints out in the print shop windows, perhaps this was a way for people to air their grievances that wasn't really making much difference. You know, it's almost that kind of like release that I think Less probably they steam. thought was yeah. quite healthy. Um, because, you know, they did collect them themselves. <laughs> like Prince George was collecting them, yeah. Um, we know that Charles James Fox would, you know, there's anecdotes of him going to Hannah Humphrey's print shop, this great print shop. Um, you know, she was, they were all based kind of Piccadilly, James's, that kind of area. And he would go in and he would talk to Miss Humphrey. And, you know, she, he was so charming and she was charmed by Charles James Fox. Mm. And then he could see all these satires of him being, you know, like really quite brutal. And he was like, oh, oh, well, Mrs. Humphrey, I better have one. And then he went on his way laughing or something like that. You know, there's like all these kind of anecdotes of them kind of just accepting it. And, and lots of the politicians were very keen to be in them. So George Canning, when he is on his way up, he makes a huge effort to be featured as a Gilray print. He like tries to orchestrate all of these um, these meetings with him. He's got a mutual friend and he's like, please just make introduce me to Gilray, but don't make it look like I've been asked to introduce. So he'll be like, um, yeah. And so what they did, he gave, he was given this kind of package to deliver to Gilray's house. Um, and then he was like, well, look, while you're there, you can try and like get, get, get away in. Um, it didn't quite work, but eventually Canning does get in and he must have been delighted when he, the first print that he saw when he is featured in the Gilroy print, he is, it's like this kind of nightmare sheen of the French Revolution as if it happened in London and Canning, it's like all the clubs, you know, White's Club and all this like pits, it's like disasters struck London and Canning's hanging from a lamppost. But, you know, I'm sure that he was actually delighted to be featured because it was a real marker of being part of the political bubble. But what I really also like is how, you know, those kind of trends have echoed through the ages and continued down the line. Because obviously we were just discussing before we came on air, George Osborne loves Gilray cartoon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, George Osborne, yeah, I actually met him at a pretty niche Gilray event a couple of years ago. Um, so outside St. James's Piccadilly, which is the big church on Piccadilly, um, there is a stone, which is a Gilray stone um, in the ground. And it's, it's kind of, you know, this is very slow, but it is happening, a kind of Gilray kind of momentum, there of a revival that I'm trying to get going. Um, but that was before I wrote the book. But um, he he was invited as the person to unveil the stone. There's about 30, 40 people kind of standing in a circle around it. It's quite like low-key event. All the Gilray enthusiasts, which are not, there's not that many of them. Both of them. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, had this like Union Jack on the floor, and then he like, took it off and then everyone was like it was, I don't know it was quite low-key the whole thing but um yeah he was he was obviously invited because he has both been 
satirized, but also commissioned a lot of satire by being in the papers and stuff. Um, but he he was telling me how you know he he would visit he's visited people's um, quite senior people's like houses in the Conservative Party, and you know you go into their house and like in the the entrance hall is just like covered in all of the satires of themselves, and I'm sure other people have seen that from other people as well. So people do like being featured, I think. Ted Heath's uh, house is basically a sort of m- memorial to himself in bundles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just pictures of them everywhere. You back yourself. <laughs> and what I also like about this is, as well as uh, you know, obviously writing so much about the past and sort of the history of gossip and satire through yeah. the centuries, you yourself obviously had a, a stint. Uh, on the Times Diary as well. And oh, so yeah. dealing with the gossip of today. And so how do you think it's changed from your perspective as a, a diarist in the early 2020s compared to uh, what it had been like a few centuries ago? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So I, yeah, I've been working, I've done a bit of the diary stuff. Um, it's quite tricky. I find it quite tricky. I find your talk like, you know, trying to get the gossip and stuff quite tricky because you have to be quite, you have to be, I don't know, it feels like, I don't ever know where the line is between are we being friends or is this like work? But um I think, um, well, I, I guess what the, the what I find so exciting about the prints of the late 18th century and Gilray is that, obviously, okay, so obviously in the past, everything's much, much slower, you know, news is much slower. But I do think we have that, that kind of like immediacy that you can, a sort of immediacy that we have today in the prints of the 18th century, because, you know, there'll be a rumour that would come out in London and then James Gilray would scurry back make this print within 24 hours and it would be on the print the window and it was that kind of like immediacy like breaking news kind of kind of story that you do get with gossip circling around Westminster today you know that email that was sent around about George Osborne um so I guess the I think compared to other forms of people receiving the news in the past um the London printmakers are very very similar to or they have that they have a, a sense of the kind of thrill of the breaking news story. I've got to ask then, was the quality of satire and gossip better now or back then? Oh, back then, for sure. For sure. And I think if, if Gil, I think the, the kind of treatment that politicians get today is quite tame. I think. Tame? Yeah, I think so. I think if Gilroy was around today and we think about some of the scandals that are happening, they would absolutely tear into to some of these politicians, I think, in a way that perhaps people criticise them quite openly now but not in a kind of really brilliant, creative, witty, um, really acerbic way that you... Original, see. yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, the reason I love these these guys, uh, these like artists, Jet Gilray and Ronson, is, okay, it's like interesting political history, but I think they're like really brilliant creatives, you know, absolutely top-notch creatives. If you want to get a, like a, a really impressive marketing campaign today, you get someone like Gilray in, because he could like really, like knew how to kind of work images and turn things in a, in a clever way. Um, you know, and you look at these images and they're still really weird and they're still really like they stay with you. And we've seen, you know, everything that's ever been created from Hollywood or CGI or like Photoshop. And even after all of that, Gilray's images are really striking. And if you think that they're still striking today, they must have been like incredibly powerful in the 1790s. Which is why our brilliant cartoonist Morton Morland still references Gil Ray in his yeah. works. Like the one of the uh, Boris and Carrie and Dom, The Haunting, yeah. uh, which was... Uh, well, you've yeah, you've, you've used the plum pudding on your cover many, many times. So. Because they echo down the ages. Yeah. So uh, perhaps it would be good to see the men of those era would still recognise the images today. Thank you very much. That's it for watching. Please remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel and join us again, same time, next week.